0: Welcome back to the Frank James Podcast. My guest today is singer-songwriter Alana Boudreaux. Her music is great, if I may be so bold as to use that word. I've been listening to it quite a bit, especially her most recent album from 2018, Goodbye Stranger. Great melodies, great arrangements, lyrics that are often quite dark, you might say, exploring a theme, especially as we'll talk about in this podcast, of looking within oneself and seeing seemingly contradictory things, the light and the dark, the good and the bad, and learning to integrate both of those things into the whole. It's always a bit difficult to just describe music, so why don't we listen to a quick snippet from the title track of Goodbye Stranger.
1: Goodbye, Stranger, goodbye, Stranger.
0: Without further ado, let's get on to the interview with Alana Boudreaux.
1: All
0: right, Alana, thanks so much for joining me on today's podcast, this very special episode, which I say at every episode, but (laughs) Uh, how are you doing today?
1: Great. How
0: are you? I am good. So you you are a new kind of guest for the podcast because you are a musician and uh, you've got how many albums do you have out? I know I saw two on Spotify.
1: Um, I have four or five.
0: Four or five. All right, nice. Um, so what? How would you uh, classify yourself as a musician in terms of of genre and uh, the the lyrical content that you make?
1: Uh, that's a good question. I get it a lot. I would say, I mean, my my typical response is just it kind of falls into the singer songwriter category because it is. It's pretty lyric heavy, like that's the main vehicle that I'm using to convey what I want to convey. But musically, it's, it kind of borrows from, it's like Paul Simon, Nora Jones, Ingrid Michaelson, <laughs> uh, you know, that kind of, that kind of vibe. So singer-songwriter, folky, folk-pop sort of thing, you know? Right. an amalgamation of those elements.
0: Yeah. I, you know, I noticed looking through your lyrics that they often read like poems and like they could stand on their own in many ways. And it, as I was going through, I noticed on your most recent album, Goodbye Stranger, uh, you do have a couple of them that you actually just took poems and set them to music. Yeah. So would you say that lyrics are more important to you or that they come first? Do, do you, are they the same importance as music to you?
1: Yeah, I think I think they are the most important. Words have always been really important to me, but when I'm writing a song the the melody and the lyrics usually come simultaneously.
0: Oh. That is a good way to write. <laughs>
1: the way it happens. <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah. Now I know that a lot of your lyrics have to do with faith, although it's not always explicit. Do you is that do you consider that to be a major theme of your work? Because you don't I noticed you didn't Classify yourself as like a Christian uh, musician. So how do you how do you see it?
1: Yeah, I've always been pretty resistant to that because it kind of pigeonholes. I mean, usually when I'm going to kind of go off on a slight diatribe. Yeah. When somebody uses that label, they're doing it. They're doing it so that they can create a buffer zone of what's safe for them to like. It's like, oh, she's Christian, safe for me to like her stuff, you know? And that's never been. I don't know, I think that the most worthwhile things are not necessarily safe. A lot of a lot of really meaningful things are actually kinda of dangerous and that's and like people too, people are very complicated. So when I've been writing music I'm just trying to convey the full gamut of human experience, like the good and the bad and the light and the shadow. So that's why I've kind of resisted that sort of simplistic label. And I sound incredibly arrogant by saying that, but I hope it makes sense like where I'm coming from. I, I think I just want it to be accessible to everybody because we're all experiencing the same things just to varying degrees of suppression or freedom (laughs) so um so yes i am trying to remember the exact question was oh yeah faith coming up thematically um my faith does come up pretty frequently in the songs that i write um because they are pretty they're pretty thinly veiled they're they're fairly autobiographical most of them um even when i'm writing about other people or if i'm borrowing a story from a book it's because it resonated with me personally so i kind of am telling it through my own whatever series of memories or impressions uh but yeah the faith thing comes up a lot because i'm very interested in god and whatever god is so my own religious affiliation has changed in my life but oh yeah faith in god that's remained kind of constant. Like, uh, uh, are you familiar with Carl Jung? Some people say Jung. I say Jung.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, you know the personality thing. I I haven't read a bunch of him, but I have I've read the personality types, and I've I've done a lot more um, reading and listening to people talking about him and kind of summarizing what he was talking about.
1: I'm I'm a bit like that too. Although I did watch his one his one interview that's been taped. um... And the guy asked him, do you believe in God? And he said, I don't believe, I know. And that's kind of, even though the doctrines and dogmas that I once took for granted have shifted a lot, that sense of knowing something divine, like at least it, like that impression on an experiential level has never changed. So that that does come up a lot in my music. Um, sort of like a sacramental imagination, I guess you could say. Sort of like like Tolkien. He was writing a lot from his... Physical lived experience of liturgy and his love for beauty, and that would come out, I think, in the way he was writing stories. Not to not to put myself on the same level as, as Tolkien, but so, yeah, you know.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, why not? Why not put put yourself on that level? Well, what what you brought up, uh, going back a little, what you brought up about the uh, you know the Christian music label being kind of a safe thing. I like. I totally can relate to that because when I was a teenager I listened to almost exclusively Christian music and it did have that feeling like oh if this band isn't Christian can I listen to Coldplay because they don't say they're Christian you know (laughs) it's like the other part of it is if I can go on a diatribe is that it seems like well Christian music is weird because it's the only genre that's defined by its lyrical content and in many ways it's more of a marketing thing than an actual genre
1: yeah it also just feels very like disintegrated to me in a way because again, kind of going back to some some of Jung's way of looking at things. He was he's actually pretty antithetical to certain Christian strains of thought, where his understanding of wholeness meant integration. So, like uh, the coming together of oppositional forces in a sense. That's what that's what it takes to become a whole, thriving human being. Whereas it's there are fairly, uh, I think. Uh, long-standing Christian concepts that have to do with this idea of burning away anything that's evil in order to be rendered perfect and worthy um, and you see that a lot in Christian music and it's good I mean it focuses on the areas that we need to heal but it's always whenever I've listened to it I've always kind of been like this nobody really lives like this. like this feels lopsided and like false or something and right. makes, I'm just like a hyper skeptical like suspicious person so I tend to just I know I, I scrutinize my own motives so much that I I just tend to consider everything from a, a variety of angles so that kind of makes me look at Christian music and wonder like I wonder I don't know it just feels yeah it feels disintegrated in some way unless like it doesn't have the teeth that life actually requires in some ways you know what I mean yeah um, I don't know if that's making sense I'm I, I kind of like to live in the ambiguity.
0: Yeah, no, that makes total sense. You're speaking my language. You know, you're ta- talking about like the integration of the shadow, I guess, is how a lot of people talk about it. And um, maybe Jung himself came up with that phrase. And yeah, we'll give...
1: You do a 16 personalities shadow side.
0: Oh, yeah. 16 personalities shadow side. I
1: don't know if people would know about what that is, but it would just be really interesting. Yeah. it just sort of it just sort of makes everyone feel really good about themselves and that's fine but sometimes it's like but here's your dark side and here's what you should watch for in yourself
0: right yeah and I th- I think um I don't know if this is apocryphal but I I read something about Jung when he first when like Myers and Briggs wrote to him and He, like his secretary or something, wrote back saying, oh, yeah, good work. But it wasn't really what Jung himself thought. And he was more like, you're missing the point. You know, you're making this more about, oh, this is who you are. This is how special you are. Whereas for him, it was like, this is how you are uh, running on autopilot to the exclusion of these other things.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I feel like he also was somebody who kind of resisted the, the Newtonian, like, very... I don't know, like hyper specific equational approach to life, too. Like, if this, then this, QED, end of story. Like, and I appreciate that about him. He's always about just like mystery. It's a mystery. Always a mystery. Vague, vague, ambiguity. So it's kind of not comforting, but it also feels more realistic, sort of.
0: Yeah, that makes total sense because, uh, well, just to give a little background, because this isn't obvious uh, to our listeners, I don't think, is that we, I first, came to know about you through my youtube channel uh you had you had commented and I saw oh you're a musician and uh you sent me an email saying you know great work on the videos and all that so that's how that's why, how we have this commonality of you know interest and personality types little backstory there but yeah with if you if you look at like the the personality types uh the psychological types essays that he wrote. It seems like he is even, Jung is even like, yeah, I'm not really sure exactly what's going on here, but this is what I see, which is in such contrast to a lot of uh, personality type experts now who are like, this is exactly what this type is like, you know? Yeah, right.
1: It's it's nice. It it would be nice if it was that simple,
0: open and shut. Right. It's almost like, I understand how this computer program works, and I know exactly what you know, if you put these variables in, this is what's going to come out, but it's not.
1: Yeah. I do feel like some of that's necessary, though. Like, even when I read Jung, I have to, like, I get super tweaked out about consciousness and stuff. So I have to step away and, like, go talk to another person and be like, are you real? So <laughs> you do have to have the really concrete, like, mapping onto reality stuff, which I'm sure he was probably totally cool. But, yeah, I guess it's just both hands, right? So
0: Right. Yeah, exactly. It's it's hard to sometimes look at those things that seem to be contradictory or things that are seem to be both true but somehow invalidate each other. Yeah. And s- still be able to accept them.
1: That was something I actually thought about bringing up in this conversation just about music is that I think I think that's one of the things great art does, it taps into the paradox and those areas of just perpetual friction and I think that's one of the only ways that we can constructively deal with the shadow side and the parts of us that we can't unravel or figure out. Because otherwise, I think it just turns into some kind of neurotic tendency. So I think, and I mean, some art is, you look at it, and it's like, wow, that's there's some twisted going on there. But it's coming out, like it's still expressing itself. So it's less neurotic than just like the suppressive denial. I think that's, yeah, I think that's the thing I... I find the greatest joy in with music is that there's a real element of freedom to it, to just excising certain things and expressing them. Um, people use the word cathartic a lot when they're talking about art, and it's kind of trite sometimes, but I think it's it's pretty accurate You know, for that reason, because it allows you to just release something or, or acknowledge something that you want to deny. or Or actually, for me, sometimes I'll write something and I won't even know what I'm really thinking about at the time. And then maybe a couple of years later, I'll look back and kind of be like, holy shit, like that's that happened in my life. <laughs> like <laughs> Years after I wrote about it, it's like my subconscious knew. Um, so it's just really interesting, you know, when that happens. But it's a real gift. Like that's probably one of the best parts. Not the best part, but one of the best parts.
0: Yeah. A lot of your lyrical content seems to be dealing with you know not necessarily trying to reconcile these things but there is a lot of especially, especially to me on goodbye stranger a lot of the lyrics are kind of dark and like looking into dark parts of uh one's life is 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 writing the lyrics in those senses i mean you say you just said sometimes i don't know what i'm writing about for lyrics when you're writing them, is it more like I'm trying to work out something now or is it more like looking back or is it sort of just like whatever comes out, comes out?
1: Um, it's usually yeah, I, I very rarely I'm not I'm not like a very disciplined writer. Um, but I mean like I know I've heard like that John Foreman writes one song every day, which is cool. But I for one thing oh. I don't have the time. A lot of my time is determined for me because I have a two year old child, so it's very busy. But Um, it's actually in one way it's been good because it has forced me to be a lot more, um, streamlined when I do have a free pocket of time. But yeah, typically when I sit down, um, it only ever comes if I'm not trying to force it, you know? I mean, there've been a couple of times where I've written songs for friends specifically and then, you know, but those are just like goofy things. Yeah. Um, But yeah, for the most part, it's, it is usually, it has to do with processing something, but it's, it's not like a. There's nothing really formulaic about it. Like it's not it's not tied to specific timelines in my life. Like sometimes it'll be something that happened two weeks ago, or actually just the other day. I had this situation of conflict that really bothered me, so I just like took up my guitar and I wrote a song about it. And I actually really like the song, so I'm gonna keep it. But it was full of like different symbols and metaphors that i have been swirling around in my head for the past year. So mm-hmm. here's this little thing that uh, this was waiting to kind of funnel itself into. So. Yeah, I, that, I don't know if that
0: makes sense, but uh, I, we're speaking the same language here. So when you think you're not making sense, it makes sense to me. So
1: Facebooks like it's like you're following.
0: Yeah, uh, or I'm just very good at pretending. Oh yeah,
1: <laughs> that could be too. I'll never know, but
0: yeah, good. Yeah, when you when you have an album, so you have ten songs on Goodbye Stranger, and I mean, ten songs seems to be about. Album length. Your last album before that had eleven. It, do you go into it being like I'm going to write an album, and it's like there's some cohesion to it, or is it more like this is just a snapshot of this period of time as a songwriter for me?
1: Um, it's, again, it's like both and like um, sometimes I'll just go through a phase where I'm just writing a lot more music. Um, like in high school, I wrote a lot, and then I just. I realized at one point after I got to college, and I was playing at all these coffee shops. People were like, "Where's your music? Like, your MySpace is cool, but where's your music? Like, I need a physical copy." That was back in the day, you know, when people had CDs. Yeah. You and I are old, so we know. I'm sure. I'm sure there's plenty of old people listening, but, um, <laughs> but yeah. So that was kind of the incentive that made me realize. All right, I'm just going to get into the studio and record something. And I just, I just kind of made a list of the songs that I remembered I had written, and I was like, "Oh, there's enough material here." um, to create something, but I didn't have this like specific theme in mind at that time. It was just kind of, um, I think it ended up feeling thematic though, because, um, my worldview was pretty, uh, synthesized and it was a lot simpler than it is now. And so it just was, but it was honestly expressing where I was at at the time. Um, and then for the rest of my albums, I think it's kind of been the same. It's just like whatever I'm processing or realizing or struggling with, it tends to assert itself along the way in whatever batch of songs a particular year or stretch of months might inspire. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, but with like "Goodbye Stranger," some of the songs on that album I had written a long time ago, and I just found them on like my phone memos. Like as I was on a plane, I was just listening to old memos. I was like, oh gosh, that's not bad. Yeah, <laughs> and and then some of them, some of them were directly inspired. I was like, you know what, I need to get back in the studio, so I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna read a ton, and I'm gonna write songs that are based off of characters in the books that I am reading. So ah. some of my favorite novels, and I reread them, like The Grapes of Wrath, is um, that actually is a song that inspired Goodbye Stranger. Um, oh, really? A lot of people listen to that, and they're like, oh, is that about your divorce? I'm like, no, I wrote it. <laughs> but you can think that if you want it's about the Great grapes that, which is it makes sense though because it sounds like a very like specific and emphatic kind of title but it was actually it's about a character in that novel this woman that works at a truck stop and to me reading about her she just conveyed this universal something about like motherhood and just a, a woman's ability to be at home to have like to whatever person happens to be going by just to be a place of welcome and warmth. So that was what I was trying to channel with that song. And then what what Bendrix read is based off my favorite book ever, which is called The End of the Affair by Graham Greene. Um, and that's, yeah, that book is amazing. Highly recommend Have you read it? Have you read any Graham Greene?
0: I have not read any Graham Greene. I have read a lot of Steinbeck, though. He's he's probably one of my favorites.
1: Yeah, he's great. Well, he could write about a turtle crossing the road and make it the most like <laughs> amazing thing. Like I dream about that turtle. It's just like I lived that turtle. I don't even know what I'm saying. But uh, yeah, I am a big fan of Steinbeck is what I'm doing.
0: Yeah, he he has such an earthy writing style where it's like you really you get the sense of it's really it's really sensory. You really get you feel like you're there. And with the Grapes of Wrath, that was one where I struggled with that. It's been a few years since I read it. Because what I noticed is that he never gave you any insight into any character's mind. And he never like just said what they were feeling. So you were it was really just like the plain facts of what was going on, what people said, what people did, but there wasn't you didn't get anything anything further than that. So for me it took about halfway into the book before I really started to get what was going on internally. Like I got I was I could follow the story fine, but it was hard for me to figure out who are these characters? Where are they going? Like what's their motivation and what kind of person are they? And I think that's a brilliant thing because it forces the reader to fill in the gaps uh, rather than just being like, you know, go into some kind of internal thing where it's like, he felt very sad and confused and, you know, things like that.
1: Yeah, no, I've had the same thought. He's, I appreciate like he's very hands off as far as, like the morality of a person or a situation like he's just sort of he does leave it up to the internal dialogue of the reader I think a bit which is funny because I feel like two people could read the same book like of mice and men and come away with a different impression about each character um I, I don't not I'd like yeah I think some people like they take issue with Steinbeck but at least some of my very conservative friends have complained a little bit about just like yeah I mean it's just too ambiguous and vague and I'm Super open-minded. I'm like, but that's how it is, you know. But that's I, I think that's more accurate and more honest in a way. Like his economy of language, like you said, it's very taut and that uh, kind of cuts off all the unnecessary fat. Which is, I just appreciate that in general about people, whatever it is they're doing. There's not like a lot of yeah superfluous whatever on top of it. Um, right. So yeah, but that's that's a really good point. He is. It's kind of hard to get a pulse on the characters in that book. Um, then the other book was the Divine Comedy, uh, particularly Hell. That one, the, the song Jig on the album, I took a Bach piece that I used to play in high school. Um, and then I was just playing it one day and I started thinking about death. And as a um, I'm sure you do too.
0: Yeah.
1: And I just remembered how stunning that book was and um, just started going along with that idea. And so that was actually a lot of fun. I really, I'm very proud of that. Song like those those lyrics are very potent I think and um yeah and and like stark not not stark Uh, they're they're grim but also hopeful in a way at least that's how I feel when I come away looking at it or listening to it so so yeah
0: yeah that's that track G definitely stands out on the album because your your style throughout the album is is that kind of singer-songwriter. It's weird because it's like sparsely arranged, but it also is lush in the production. So it will be like a lot of them are just stand up bass guitar, background harmonies, but it still like feels very full and dreamy. But then Jig is like this this classical piano and and you and that's it. A very it's like a totally different genre. Um and yeah, the lyrics, I was like, yeah, this, well, of course you have, um, what was it? Uh, abandon all, abandon hope who enter here. So I was like, oh, okay. We're talking about hell, I guess. So <laughs> it, yeah, it's a very, um, I'm just looking over the lyrics now. Yeah. Ha- sewn their mouths with wire shut. Yeah. It's pretty, uh, <laughs> pretty grim. You might say. Yeah,
1: it is. It's very visceral. I wanted the imagery to kind of pop out a little bit there. But yeah, that line is pretty intense. That's about the people who were never able to make up their mind about anything.
0: Because, yeah.
1: Yeah, they were silent in the face of whether it was injustice or just something like that. They And they never chose a side. They ended up with their mouths so shut. should They should have spoken when they had a chance. That's the moral of the story. So, yeah.
0: You have another song, and I forget which one it is. Maybe it's the next one on the album. Oh, yeah. All hail mediocrity is one of the lines in it. And it seemed to me that that was kind of the same uh, sort of uh, theme going on there where it's like people who don't go people who don't live life in any kind of uh, big way, where it's just like going going down kind of like the the middle lukewarm route. Am I interpreting that correctly? Is that what you're going for?
1: Yeah, that's. um... That is part of it. But that song was actually inspired after, particularly that, that, that line after reading my, my second favorite book is the movie goer by Walker Percy. Um, have you read any Walker Percy?
0: No, I'm not that well read. John Steinbeck. Yes. But
1: <laughs> I think you probably like him, but, um, the movie goer is based, it, it's about this young man who, um, he kind of has this awakening when he's around, I don't know, 30 or something. Um, But he just recognizes that he's just stuck in this kind of phase of ennui, and he's wondering if it's worth moving beyond it. Uh, And so he starts searching, and I mean, that sounds very basic and maybe like stereotypical or something, but it's actually a really profound book, really, really beautiful, profound book. And Walker Percy himself was a Catholic um, with a very robust faith and a very active imagination. A lot of Catholics have very active imaginations, which is something, although I'm not Catholic anymore my Catholic imagination is still very active. And that's, it's great. It's like, just, it's very gory and intense and beautiful. And, um, I'm thankful for that because there is something very fleshy about it. And I mean, there are elements of obviously any religion that are kind of anti body. Uh, so that's a whole other topic, but all this to say, I'm very thankful for the way it's allowed me to look at the world. And Walker Percy is somebody who speaks that same language. And in this book, um, this young man just sort of represents that that moment in life where, again, going back to Jung, he talks about how there's two phases in life. The first phase is uh, the phase where our persona is perfected. So it's like where we're indoctrinated by the religion we happen to be born into. We're enculturated by the family we happen to be born into, and that's fine and good. It's like the ego trying. It's like the ego is figuring out who it is, who you are, um, and that's necessary for civilization to have any sort of basis or to thrive, and so that we're not all falling upon each other, killing each other killing the other person right so it's great it's really important but then the second half of life is that point where um you're challenged to step beyond the persona that you've made Mm -hmm. and that's the only point in life where you're actually going to make contact with what's true like beneath it and beneath it there's a lot of chaos and shadow so it's very scary that's actually something i've been experiencing in the past probably four years of my life have been uh, a really beautiful but intense experience of that exact process um, and so that's what that song, um, Horrenda Noche, is, it's based off of St. John of the Cross. Uh, he wrote about the dark night of the soul. And so that's why I called it that, because he's Spanish, I kind of barred from him, put that over. Yeah. And the idea just being that experience, yeah, of moving beyond the persona, whatever it is. Uh, and throughout the song, you're also hearing about different figures who are clergy, like people who are, who've chosen to be celibate and live in, in a religious life kind of setting, but who are starting to experience that exact same source of tension of encountering their shadow and wondering if they've chosen this path because it's just the continuation of the expected persona, or if it's because they are genuinely getting closer to intimacy with God. Because sometimes it's not bringing you closer to God, even though you thought it would, you know, because everyone told you it would. Um, so that's what that sounds about. And how it's easy—you can just skid above the surface of that question your whole life long, even if you're living what looks to be a very profound life, and it's actually very mediocre. Even if you're praying every day, three times a day, um, if your—if the calluses on your knees don't reflect a real disposition toward whatever God being, whatever God is, you know, then it's not really worth it. Ah, right. And a very long.
0: No, I I love that. I mean, I I prefer a guest to. Uh speaks for long periods of time rather than just says, yep, and then makes me have to <laughs> jump in. Yeah.
1: yeah.
0: Don't make me do my job as a host. And that'll that'll make you a good guest. Uh,
1: asking questions. So that's happened a few times on podcasts where I start asking too many questions. The other person is like,
0: wait. I, pre- I prefer that. So <laughs> it's much easier to be a guest because it's like, I don't care how this turns out. It's not my show. You know, <laughs> so... You make a really interesting connection there between the between the ego and faith, and how you know you talked about the two phases of life in terms of the ego, where it's built up, you have a mask that's given to you basically, and then you suddenly realize that it's mostly illusion. Uh, and faith is in the same; it's very similar. And you draw that parallel there, where some that were many people will just go further and further into it rather than into religion uh, rather than ever having the moment of of really examining it and when i when i was in college i took a christology course and one of the things that the professor said that really stuck with me is that a lot of people's or maybe everyone's Faith journey has, like, you know, you're going along normally, you've been brought up in the church or whatever, but then you have this moment where it all kind of falls apart, and people either go in one of, I guess, three ways. Either they just toss it out and they're like, oh, that was garbage, or they get calcified in their religion, and it's like just a resistance to anything that's against it. It's like, no, no, that can't be right, never mind. Uh, or they kind of let it fall apart and then try to build it back up with in a, in a different way so that it has new meaning in this new phase of life where you, it's, it almost, it's almost like impossible to go back to accepting things the way that you accepted it before. And, uh, it's, it's interesting cause I, that's a parallel with just like yourself, you know?
1: Yeah. It's, it's, it is really nerve wracking though. And I can understand why, you know, like I, I have a blog where, uh, like, because I, a lot of my listenership since I began making music happens to be Catholic just by default, because that's what I was for 26 years. I'm 28 now. So that makes sense. It's kind of the niche that I, I, it was the corner in which I wove my web, as they say, which is (laughs) a weird, creepy way to put it. But, um, it makes sense to me now where a lot of stuff happened in my life, you know, that kind of, that was sort of chaotic that, was out of my control, that sort of naturally um, removed a lot of the stable supports that I thought that I had in a sense. So like I landed up, landed up, landed in uh, a marriage that was very brief, that was very toxic. So when that ended in the Catholic world I came from, that's not a, it's not the right vocational trajectory. So I think when people see hit the fan in someone's life who was a very good Catholic all of their life. It's just like, it doesn't compute, you know, it doesn't make sense. Yeah. That's in, which now I look back, I just see things now that I never saw before. Like the very, very transactional approach to God and faith where like, if I do this, if I am a very, very good girl all of my life, then it will all turn out just great. And thank God I've moved beyond that way of thinking. Cause it's, I, I now see how fear based, but it's like fear and judgment based. Those are the two poles from which I drew my strength and my, my means of assessing any given situation, which is kind of nuts, but that's kind of what I was dealing with. But I also understand that, you know, had some of these things not occurred in my life, just sort of, I mean, yeah, I made choices, absolutely. But had certain elements of chaos not just kind of occurred to me, I think I would have, I can't say for sure, but I would have been tempted to stay in the familiar because... And this is something Jordan Peterson talks about a lot. I mean, I I love him very dearly, and a lot of people don't, and that's totally fine.
0: Yeah,
1: he's human, like the rest of us. But
0: yeah,
1: uh, so there's elements about him that I also I don't I don't fully agree with any one person. I've come to that conclusion. So, but all this to say, he does say that uh, just on an instinctive level, we resist the chaos. Like we really don't want to be challenged with the the different systems that we're using to map reality. You know, and that makes sense because I think we can you can sort of sense just, you know, if I start to question this one thing, this one tear of the wallpaper, then I'm going to have to reconfigure all of my cognitive structures and I might have to do it completely alone. So, and that's kind of, it's kind of been what's happened. Although I do meet people along the way, which is a real gift. I think um, it's just kind of the way God provides. Like I have met lots of people who are in the same liminal space that I am in now, where even though I have left the religion that I grew up in, I'm still the same person, you know, like um, I still have the same behaviors. I just, the beliefs that underlie those behaviors have shifted a lot. So, but it is hard. It is scary. It is lonely, but I think it's really worth it. Like, I feel a lot happier and, and um, more at peace than I ever have in my life. So I think, I don't even remember what you asked me, but I'm sure there's some helpful piece of information in there for someone who's listening. So
0: yeah, I mean, hey
1: kid, whoever you are, yeah, you're, you're loved and you're fine.
0: Yeah. I mean, feel free to just, if I ask a question, just answer a question you'd prefer to answer. You know, don't, don't feel bound by such uh, trivial things as what I say. So, uh,
1: (laughs) I think they're good questions though, because I'm talking about in-depth things. So they must be worthwhile. I don't even remember what it was, but I'm sure it was good. So, yeah,
0: I don't remember either. So, uh, (laughs) So we're, we're talking a lot about faith right now. Uh, what kind of connection do you see between creativity and, like, the creative act and faith? Because I see a lot of parallels. I've talked about it a lot before, actually, and how yeah. creativity is in many ways, like, faith. <laughs> you know, it's, it's the ultimate act of faith. What, what kind of parallels do you see there? Not, not so much in, like, theme, themes when you're writing, but more like the actual work
1: actual work itself the
0: actual act of it
1: yeah that makes me think of um and excuse me while i put my geek hat on i was homeschooled but in the simurillion i don't remember the name of the god figure but he like sings creation into being that always struck me as a really beautiful thing like um the act of singing this like numinous breath uh is what was required to to create the design so i really love that and yeah it's it's a really interesting thing the idea of faith and co-creation. I guess that's kind of how I've always looked at it as, because I do believe in a God that is uh, like the first, the uncaused, you know, cause the the first mover of everything. And so yeah. um, that's never shifted in my in my way of thinking. So I guess whenever I create something, I have understood it as being like a fractal of that first act. Um, and I, I remember reading to one of my favorite philosophers, his name is Joseph Pieper. He's a phenomenologist and he he has this line where he said that anytime you validate the existence of something or another person in particular, what you're saying to them is it is good that you exist so that's what is really happening when you when you say that you love another person you're saying it's good that you exist um, and I feel like that's what that's what worthwhile art does it validates what exists it validates what is and so yeah, I think in that way, yes I see it as being a co-creative echo of creation the way that God first intended it to be. Hopefully that doesn't sound too like, dogmatic, but yeah, that's, that is the way I've understood it in my
0: life. Yeah, that's a good way of looking at it because, I mean, in some ways, you could look at creating something as like, oh, I came up with something new. But in many ways, it's just, it is, like you said, affirming things that already exist.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Obviously, you can't really create anything that's new, but uh, you can really only reassemble old parts into new things.
1: Do you think that originality is real like do you think that ever happens
0: i think yes i do but i think it happens a lot more rarely than we like to say it does uh and i like that could just be my biases like what i like you know my favorite music is the most <laughs> truly creative but it's like uh i don't know you look at Before we started recording, I mentioned uh, the Beatles, how they're my favorite. And for their time, they were really doing new stuff. Now, what was that new stuff? They were playing existing instruments in new ways. They were using existing recording equipment to do things that no one else had done. So it's like, on the one hand, it is new because it hadn't been done before. But it's not like they invented things like they were just finding new ways to use Existing things, but there there is also that element of like the words that they came up with with for lyrics, like "Strawberry Fields." The lyrics for that were were really unprecedented, uh, at least t- in recent memory. At the time, you know, who knows? Maybe in in ancient times there was some, you know, poet who wrote, uh, you know, "No one I think is my tree." You never know, but um, I tend to think that there are people who, at the, at the very least, push things so far to the edge that it seems new, even if it isn't. And that kind of reminds me of... Uh, I've been listening to a lot of Alan Watts recently, and one of the things in, uh, in a lecture that I listened to recently was him talking about... Uh, I listened so closely. Some view of... Some Eastern view of God... Uh, and life in general, it's sort of like God is is saying, let's see how far we can push life. Like, let's just see how far out we can get. And so I think that's the role of artists in some ways is to um, take that same approach and be like, how far out can we get with this art form? Because it's, a, you know, it's expressing something within in, in like an analogous way to god creating the universe uh i guess it's on a much smaller form at least but the, you it can go either way cuz you get like avant garde stuff that is that just seems like ugly garbage but it's far out
1: i'm just going to ask you but like so do you think that that what do you think about like, postmodern art do you think it is uh valuable i mean it it is what it is but do you, like and that would open up a whole discussion about value but but do you think it's yeah valuable
0: I think that stuff that is avant-garde and not really immediately palatable is most valuable just in the sense of challenging what the art form could be, whatever it is, and not necessarily in and of itself being good. Uh, Of course, it's a judgment... You always get into arguments with people about, like, can you really say art is good or bad? It's like, yeah, I can say that. Uh, (laughs) But, like, if someone writes... I'm not really into anything avant-garde, but if someone creates a novel that is totally avant-garde to the point where it's unreadable, that in and of itself may not be very good, but other writers can say, oh, wow, look what happened. Look what this person did with the form. And then they can take parts of that and use it in something that is actually uh, a bit more mainstream and palatable and good and i guess that that's the whole thing avant garde it's on the edge it's like exploring new things and it's not always exploring like the best things it's just exploring new things it's just trying trying new stuff and so
1: yeah
0: yeah so someone like you know jackson pollock his paintings to me it's like what's the point but it it kind of like showed this the art form could be this it doesn't have to be something else
1: yeah i mean do do you think that it's like postmodernism that kind of art avant-garde do you think it is reflective of like the spiritual state of a people or a society or do you think it is just a matter of some person who's maybe mildly unhinged who's just like oh now is the time like and then they because like you were saying earlier it is sort of like an endless series of contingencies so even something like Pollock doing what he did it's almost like well his idea was dependent on Probably countless other ideas and impressions that he had through his life, around him in the ether that he grew up in, or the people he befriended. So, yeah, I guess going back to that original question, do you think that it is reflective of the spiritual state and or the state of consciousness? Um, And if so, do you think it's reflecting something that shows progress or regress?
0: That's a good question. I think it is. It's weird because I think in general, like on at scale, it probably shows. It reflects the lack of society being grounded in kind of those universal truths of religion and, and so on. And you know, the 20th century with all the the wars and the the horror that happened, it, it I think that's part of it. Like everyone kind of was like, "Well, the world uh, went up in flames," and so. Th- you know, you had other stuff like existentialism that came up in the in the wake of all of it, showing a, a loss of faith. And so it. I think art that's postmodern is a reflection of that to show that, like, all the rules are gone. Nothing really matters. It's like, whatever works. But then there's the other side of it where it's not at scale, but if you look at individuals who maybe just find a kind of freedom in having no rules, but it's not necessarily a reflection of some kind of inner uh, directionlessness when it comes to religion or morality. Like I, I like to do stuff that's kind of weird. I mean, not to call myself avant-garde, but occasionally it's fun to make stuff like that. But I feel like I'm coming from a different place, but there is kind of a bleak hopelessness of postmodern art in general. And, uh, you you feel it if you walk into a the contemporary section of an art museum you just feel like disturbed and it's like why would anyone put this on a canvas and yeah I feel like in those cases it probably is reflecting some kind of just like that inner trauma of not having the the external guidance of whether it be religion or just morality in general yeah and kind of like being in that state as a society of the illusion is shattered, and now we don't know what to do to pick up the pieces.
1: Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. I think probably, yeah, probably for some people, it is a more honest reflection of their interior state. And then for somebody, for, for other people, it's more of a, they're just seeking attention, and they want shock value, like, but you can't, you can't really, you can never know somebody's motives on that level. But it seems like, you've got an admixture of both of those things. Like who knows, maybe Pollock was really, may, that could be very sincere, like, you know, what he created. And so it would be valuable. But then you see other things like, like the, the urinal or the crucifix in a bottle of urine. And you're like, you're just, you're just seeking to scandalize for the sake, but that, that in itself is making a point, I guess they're making a point that, well, it doesn't matter anymore. So here it is in your face. It doesn't matter anymore. So it, so there's something true about that too, I guess, in a way, but, i don't know i just tend to i find that less tasteful
0: <laughs> yeah
1: but yeah by the way have you seen the documentary why beauty matters by roger Scruton? no oh i highly recommend It it's kind of all about what we're talking about right now
0: so okay you
1: know, for free everybody maybe 20 minutes long
0: Wait, did you say it was on youtube vimeo vimeo okay gotcha yeah. where the the, the upper crust of video uh sites
1: yeah it's it's the snooty
0: place yeah um that reminded me of a set of paintings uh let me see if i i'm trying to i'm googling it to try to remember the um artist name uh oh it's it's called the stations of the cross and it's i can't find it the the it's called the Stations of the Cross. I forget what the artist's name is. I think for some reason Barrett is coming to mind, but I think that might be his first name. But it's all just like straight lines. It's, it's what is it, 12? Are there 12 or 16 stations? I forget. Um, 12, right? Uh,
1: well, there's 13
0: in the count. 13? There you go. Um, I'm not, yeah, I'm not Catholic, so I don't, I'm not as familiar, but the, um, it's just a bunch of, vertical lines on different canvases and even though it's like sort of like that kind of postmodern thing it's that was one that struck me as being like beautiful in a weird way where it was like the simplicity of just like a it was like two colors the background color and then vertical lines each one had a different set of vertical lines and even though it didn't make sense really on a surface level it kind of made i don't know it made emotional sense to me you know what i mean yeah so I, I feel like, it, it, in general, maybe that kind of art is is for shock value. And I'm sure people who saw something like that at first were shocked, like, how could this be in an art museum? But it, I think there are occasionally these moments where you find certain works that ha- that do have the sincerity behind it. And like, I don't, with Pollock, who knows? I don't know. And with this, with this Stations of the Cross, maybe that was, you know, supposed to be satirical. I don't even know. Um, But you just, it's like, I guess that's the whole thing about the audience, how the audience takes something is just as important as the artist's intention, because it can be totally the opposite of what the artist intends.
1: Yeah, that is really interesting. And I don't know, there's no way to measure this, obviously, but I think it's true that certain artists are able to, like Sukhion Stevens is someone who, like, I love his album Curry and Lowell, but I I can only listen to it every now and then because... I remember the first time I listened to it. I was describing it to a friend, and I said, "It's kind of like it makes me feel same way I feel when I'm on a plane and I look over and I see somebody sleeping, and it's like, oh, this person is like in repose, like almost like when they were a child, and I, I'm staring at them, and I'm like, oh, I need to look away because they're so vulnerable, like they're they're so exposed and vulnerable, and here I am just like staring at them, and then and that's the way his music made me feel because there's a, there's an immediacy of his presence in it. And that's, and it's very, um, very tangible and accessible, I think. So I feel like a lot of people will listen to that album. That album hits me in a very personal place for a lot of different reasons, but I feel like many people who might have a totally different experience or upbringing than Sufjan or than what I had or whatever, they're still going to find something that registers emotionally, which is, which makes it feel more generous to me. And it Mm. makes it feel more sincere because yeah, some of that modern art, you look at it and you just feel nothing, like you just feel an emptiness. So so there's something solipsistic about it, it seems, like it just doesn't translate into any conceivable memory or phrase or image. And that just seems really, um, yeah, it just, it seems very, what's the word? What is the word? Not smug, like, you know.
0: When, Self-indulgent.
1: Yeah, that's exactly what I, yeah, exactly. So, but that's, everybody says that about avant-garde so yeah we've already established that long (laughs) the experts already established it but but yeah uh actually speaking of this is a sort of a tangent but speaking of stages of the cross i just i was looking at um just like the symbol of the cross like a few months ago and for the first time i recognized one of the things i really appreciate about that symbol is that to me anyway it indicates that that union is possible but closure is overrated and that's that those ideas, those two ideas are a great comfort to me, because I think the first half of my life, I was looking for closure for a lot of things. And now I'm at a point where I'm like, uh, you can still be, you know, united and experience intimacy without closing all the doors on the things that you wanted to tidy up. You know, like if you wait for that your whole life, then it's probably you're not going to have the other, you know, greater thing, the experience of intimacy. So I don't know if that makes sense, but it was just it just struck me anew when I was looking at it. I was like, I've never thought of that. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, I'm gonna to have to ask you to unpack it a little bit, like how how the cross symbolizes that for you.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, just you know, you have the horizontal and the vertical, and the meeting point. Yeah. And so that to me signifies a un- like union of opposites in a sense, like there there's a irreversible kind of union that's happening there. But then, uh, like I, I took I took Euclidean geometry and. Just the idea of, I don't even remember the terms, but the idea of these infinite points around a circle that, like, they just go on forever and ever. There's no ending point. And so when I was just considering, like, from that central meeting point of those axes, uh, this idea of just an infinite amount of rays, that th- they don't have an ending point necessarily. And this, yeah, the idea that you can circumscribe something. I don't know, though. I mean, people, like, the circle is also really significant symbol that means a lot to me in different ways but i just had never considered the cross in that way and also if you look at like like in catholicism we have some very um grotesque crucifixes which i actually have always appreciated because it's just like very tangible and sensual and just like wow this is a very this is this is total vulnerability like this person has no protection but they signify self-gift it signifies intimacy You know what I mean?
0: You just mean, like, because Christ on the cross is so open?
1: Well, that, but also if you, like, if you consider what most Christians believe about what that sacrifice indicates and what it allows for, uh, which is ultimately union with God, you know, because there was a rift and that self-gift healed the rift or allowed there to be a bridge built so that we can gain access to God. So that's, and obviously a lot of my thoughts about certain aspects of theology have shifted, but. That's the traditional understanding of Christ on the cross. I don't know. Maybe you have a different. I don't know. What What is your background like, faith wise? Are you
0: what? Uh, well, I was. I grew up in the church, and it's complicated. <laughs> it's a complicated relationship. I would say, you know, like I am. A, uh, I culturally identify with Christianity, and I just have a hard time now r- reconciling any of it. You know, and so it's like I I feel like like what you said earlier, like I feel like there's definitely the unmoved mover, like there's definitely intent in the universe. But beyond that, I'm like, I don't know. And I feel like um, I also wonder how much of Christianity is diluted, you know, it's diluted, like not diluted but, you know, like because we get it through. All these other humans, and you know, you don't. You, we don't learn uh, the gospel message from Jesus. We learn it from you know a pastor or, or the the all the adults around us. You know, so it, you get a lot of their distorted view of things along the way. Whether you know, even if they have the best intentions, and especially I feel like if you grow up in a, kind of a mainline Protestant church in America, you get a very particular view of things and uh so yeah I'm as of now I'm kind of in a like I've called it before spiritual no man's land where I feel like I don't even know you said you used the word liminal before and I feel like that's kind of where I am where I'm not particularly uh religious but I do feel like I got there's something there to be continually explored and I'm not in a rush to get there you know yeah
1: yeah that's kind of I get that because I'm in a similar space where yeah, I mean, uh, I find orthodoxy really interesting for a number of reasons. But, you know, I'm right now where I'm at my life, too, I'll go to divine liturgy. And I'll just have these, I'll just have thoughts where I'm like, you know, I'm not sure that the Christian narrative is the most accurate, like, understanding of God, you know, it's, it's been passed down. And it's the one we've been working with, but it may not be true. You know, like, that's on a daily basis. So I'm, I have yeah, I mean, and I've been kind of agnostic since I was like 10. Like I'll have phases of agnosticism, I just never articulated it to anyone because you just couldn't. <laughs> couldn't. <laughs> like
0: Don't do that.
1: <laughs> oh, like and plus there are real psychological, you know, experiences when you grow up hearing about hellfire and things like that that does affect you especially as a kid. So I've experienced a lot of healing in those areas where now I'm at this point of recognizing, you know, I can still go here and it's very beautiful because it's so ancient. Orthodoxy is so ancient and I'm watching it. And I'm kind of like, yeah, I don't know about the Christ story. I don't think I believe all of it. And some days I don't know that I believe any of it, but I do think that God is worthy of my worship. Um, and these people look like they're worshiping God. So I'm going to keep coming back. And the, one of the things I love about it too, is that it, it just, it's not pervaded by like the cult of personality, you know, which growing up, you could go to a mass at one church and it's going to be like, totally different than one across town where there's just different personalities vying for attention and different trends and methods of doing things. Whereas with orthodoxy, it's just kind of, you can tell it's been like this thousands of years, literally. Um, So I like that. And I also think that I, I don't know, at least just in my temperament, very drawn to symbols and ritual and liturgy. It just, it's very grounding and 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 I've also thought, like, well, what's the other alternative? Like, I don't know if I believe this narrative, but I need a narrative to wrestle with. And mm-hmm. it seems, you know, I don't want to turn into like a cafeteria Christian where I just pick and choose certain things because that feels disingenuous. But but yeah, I mean, basically all this to say, I'm kind of right there with you. It's like, it's uh, very compelled by it and interested in it. But I also don't want to like be bullshitting myself just for the sake of comforting myself. Um, but I also don't want to turn my back on it because I think there's a lot of truth there. Like... Even if it is like you said, really like refracted and watered down, and I don't know, um, whoever God is, I think He's immense enough to handle. Any God worth His salt is can handle the doubts. I think so.
0: Yeah, which is not always what the, what you hear like when you're growing up in the church. they so like, almost like God is uh, so touchy. If you if you doubt Him, He'll be like, oh, that's it.
1: Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, it's funny because that's almost like a metaphorical idea that really has a literal uh implication where if you doubt it then your parents or your family or your friends they're gonna get touchy, you know what I mean? So it's like and it is like I think that's part of the reason why I remained as long as I did was because I did have a social substrata that I really Oh loved. yeah. Yeah. So having that kind of removed allowed me to be like, Well, well, what the hell? I mean I <laughs> I've had these doubts and these questions for so long, so now I can kinda of lean into them and it's actually been a really beautiful experience, you know. So yeah.
0: Yeah, when you think about it, it I think a lot of it maybe comes to that that uh, thought of God as a father figure, and we think of it in those human terms, where it's like if you know a father who has a kid and is like, "You better be grateful for all the stuff I did for you." But when you think about it, it, it makes more sense to be like, "God created everything," so it's like the the stakes are not very high for God. It's like, "Hey, I I created you," you know. It's like. I'm not going to be offended by anything you do. It's not like, it, it, yeah. it
1: experientially too. Like being a parent now myself, just like realizing, no, I'm just not acting like that's just not. I mean, I know parents like that. I know folks like that who have a very what would it be authoritarian way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> at least for me, experientially, and that's really the only thing we all have to go on is our own lived experience. Anyway, at the end of the day, and my experience has been just like the love of a mother is not conditional. like I have a son now, and it's just like no never you know like i mean yeah i'm human so please god may i never like end up eating my words but it just as it is as i experience it there's just no way that my love would be limited by his actions or his you know toddlers are tyrants they're horrible people most of the time and Mm -hmm. but the love is it's unyielding and and it just remains so yeah but yeah
0: yeah going back a little further to uh what you were saying about you know the the Orthodox Church and the ritual and everything. I, it's it's unexpected, but I feel like the more that you kind of doubt the the actual veracity of everything, the more that you crave that kind of ancient ritual and tradition. Because it's like if you if we're gonna go to this like contemporary church where there's no tradition, then it really only relies on me actually firmly believing this stuff. Whereas th- when it's a bunch of ritual, especially ancient, it's like, oh, now I feel connected to this bigger thing and I don't even have to understand it all. And it doesn't rely so much on me doing all this heavy lifting of trying to believe something that, you know, was written 2000 years ago. And, uh, yeah, so I I get that. Where and I think I don't know, maybe maybe I'm uh, speculating too much, but I feel like our generation is kind of swinging back towards that a little bit, the ritual aspect of it because we find in the modern world, we don't want a church that's modern, you know? It's like we don't want something that that is like just competing with every other form of uh, socializing or entertainment or whatever we want something distinct that is rooted in something
1: yeah
0: and uh, so I I myself haven't checked out the Orthodox Church but I have been interested because I've heard that that has like the most unchanged ritual in the Christian denominations uh, so that 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 just struck me about uh, what you said and how how the ritual is so important to you
1: yeah and I mean the other the other neat aspect is just that With orthodoxy, there's just a lot more room for mysticism, too. Right. You're going to have, yeah, you're going to have, like, really intense people in any religion that you, like, you're going to, yeah, you're going to have hyper-dogmatic people anywhere you go, whether you're talking about sports or religion or whatever, you know what I mean? Yeah. The conservatives and the libs, yeah, it's just we're in a happy dance with each other all the time. But the thing about Eastern theology just resonates a lot more than Catholic theology which I'm very familiar with because I majored in theology and philosophy and it just was steeped in it all my life. But as I study this, it's just a comfort because it allows room for the very human experience of doubt and just kind of also saying, I have no idea uh, what's going on here or if it's accurate. And that's, it, it, there's just, yeah, there's room for it. And it's, it's beautiful because like you just said, it is so ancient that it kind of takes care of, it takes care of a lot of things for you. Like my mind runs a lot, but I have found that when I go there, it just kind of shuts off because almost because it is so sensory. It's like you have the incense, you have insane icons that are super intense all around you. And the whole thing is sung. And I'm just like, I don't know what the hell is happening here. So I'll just kind of like stare at this, you know, John the Baptist, like with his head on a platter. And but it's this beautiful I find the artwork very compelling. I always have for some reason I've always been, I always had a weird fascination with Russia actually ever since I was a child. I don't know what that is. Maybe hmm. There's like a darkness there. And actually it makes me think of a friend of mine said to me once, like, have you ever noticed how holy places are dark places? And I was like, yeah, that's very true. And it's because I had just gotten back from Israel and I had gone to some Eastern like Orthodox churches there. And I was like, they were almost like caves. Um, but they were in just that sense of the numinous was there. And I, I realize I need that in order to, like, I don't know, have meaning in my life. Otherwise, it, it does start to feel pretty superficial pretty fast. And like, it's all of my own making or it's all my own emotional projection. So when you're confronted with something intense and dark like that, it, it does. I think it does. It touches the pulse of something that is true and massive and beyond all of us, even if it's just one form of it. I think it does touch the pulse better than a lot of other things do. So, yeah, yeah
0: in many ways it's almost like the difference between these these places that provoke questions versus the ones that try to provide all the answers. Yeah. yeah
1: exactly. Right. Yeah, uh,
0: cuz I feel like a lot of I don't I don't mean to sound for my listeners out there, I don't mean to sound like I'm bashing anything in particular, but it's just from my experience it sounds like a lot of modern churches uh they're trying to just give all the answers. And it's, you know, it's like, we've got, we've got apologists, we've got an answer for every question you have. Whereas, and I think a lot of people need that. You know, it's not, not everyone can handle questions and ambiguity and all that.
1: Like some people just, their nature, they just don't ask questions. And I was like, wow, that's amazing. But it's, I think it's true, like just different types, yeah.
0: Yeah, well, I, was, I would just, pre- like you mentioned mysticism, I would just prefer something where it's like, hey, there's this big mystery, Rather than being like, let me break it down to you in a very uh, simplistic way. It's it's much more. It just seems more meaningful. Of course, we're talking about God. It's going to be more meaningful if we're like, we can't. We literally can't answer these questions.
1: Yeah.
0: Rather than being like, well, God is like this uh, because logically, uh, it's like.
1: That's very true. Yeah. It makes it, Have you heard of um, dark matter?
0: Uh, yeah, but I don't know what it is. Does anyone know what it is?
1: Right. Not really. You know that. There's a massive amount of it, like more dark matter than actual uh, concrete matter, 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 matter. Yeah. Like, and we only know that it's there based on the way that it influences other things. But the idea, the understanding, which, which is funny, because actually when you science itself is pretty religious in some ways, then that's like a whole other topic. But a lot of it is just theory. A lot of it is just speculation, too. So yeah. with dark matter, I just it just when I first read about it, I was like, oh, oh, my God. We know there's a lot of it but can't really describe it
0: and that's where we're at so yeah well alana that sounds like a good place to wrap up this episode this has been really great one of my favorite podcast episodes i've only done 12 so right. <laughs> but it's shot right to the top
1: well,
0: uh yeah do you have uh So we've mentioned uh, your albums on here, your most recent one, Goodbye Stranger. You can find it on Spotify. You have it also on Bandcamp, is that right? It's
1: on Bandcamp. It's on iTunes and Apple Music as well. And folks can follow me on Instagram. I'm pretty active on there. Alana Boudreaux. Well, Alana underscore Boudreaux. Uh, I'm deleting my Facebook, so I will not be on there anymore. Sweet. I'm writing a lot of new music, and once I can figure out how to get the money... I'll be going back into the studio. So hopefully like in the next year. So.
0: Oh, great. Yeah, Very nice. Yeah. I'll have to have you on again for like, you know, the the album release, uh, you know, PR circuit.
1: Great. Yeah, well, yeah. If I can figure out how to get something like that set up, I wouldn't know. <laughs> that would be awesome. So thank you for the gift of your time. It was a great conversation.
0: Well, thank you.
1: If you will back up your bags, pack up all, does you own end? But it? Said, love don't make moves Love don't make moves Love don't make moves like
0: There she goes Thanks again to Alana For coming on the podcast What a great conversation I know all of you out there in podcast land Had a great time as well At least I think I know Make sure you check out Alana's music wherever fine music is streamed or sold. You know, the the usual suspects, Spotify, iTunes, Amazon, Bandcamp. The relevant links will be in the description. And thanks to you so much for listening to this podcast. I sure appreciate it. And I'm not sure I would do this if no one was listening. So, (laughs) I mean, it's fun. It's fun, you know what I'm saying? But uh, you all out there listening make life worth living. Make sure you are following on SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify, whatever your preferred platform of podcast listening is. and tune in next time, whatever the next guest may be. Maybe there won't be a guest. Maybe FJ himself will be the guest talking at you like a you know, you know, like I usually do. So uh, did I introduce myself as Frank James at the beginning of the podcast? I don't think I did. No one knows who I am. This has been Frank James. Anyway, let's wrap this up. Let's get this this pizza in the box and into the, you know, Domino's heat wave bag and out the door. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time on the Frank James podcast.